Hello, this is Bill Chamberlain and this is Clint Tatum. And we're here to bring you a special edition of the Popmatic Podcast. Today we have an interview with Larry Cohen, the Maverick filmmaker of such movies as Bone, Black Caesar, God Told Me To, and It's Alive. And speaking of It's Alive, this movie will be shown Saturday, October 17th at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the Auditorium at 2 p.m. as part of our Shocking Saturday Film Festival in October. More on this after the interview. In doing research, you've been described as a radical filmmaker and a guerrilla filmmaker. How would you describe yourself and why? Well, I guess I am a a maverick, I'd say that. I've always worked kind of outside the system. I've written, produced, and directed my films. I haven't had any interference in the making of them. I have made all the decisions that are in casting and in locations and in, and in script, cause, and I've written the scripts myself. But making movies has been a one-man operation for me, and I've made 21 films that I've directed, and, and as a writer, I've written 46 or 47 f- produced features and created eight television series. So I've had a nice career and always did what I wanted to do and never felt I was under anybody's thumb or anybody's command. I, I, I don't do well with authority, never had to do, deal with it. So uh, I've enjoyed the experience of making movies because I got to do it my way. As a filmmaker, you have a reputation of just showing up on location and start shooting your movies without permits or permission. Is there a moment in your personal filmmaking history where you thought to yourself, boy, I really pulled one off there? Well, when we made a movie called God Told Me To, we actually shot a chase scene in the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. There were 5,000 police officers there. So usually when you don't have permits, you, you flee from the police. Uh, and try and go somewhere where the cops won't see you. But I decided to go right into the midst of the police department's biggest event, the parade down Fifth Avenue on St. Patrick's Day, and infiltrate the parade with an, an actor who happened to be Andy Kaufman, who was later to become quite well-known as a comedian. And uh, Andy was just beginning his career in nightclubs, and I picked him up and said, I, I think you're going to be a star. I want to put you in a movie. So we dressed him as a policeman, and we infiltrated him into the ranks of the cops marching down Fifth Avenue, and we shot this sequence where he goes berserk and pulls a gun and starts shooting people. I guess only a lunatic would do something like this, but, you know, the amazing thing is that we got away with it. I've uh, read that you have an interesting way of writing. Could you uh, talk with us a little bit about your writing process? Well, my, my writing process usually is to start off with an idea and then just see where it takes me. I, I usually don't work out an outline. I don't work out all the plot twists in advance. I just start writing it and let the characters come to life and then let them start taking me where they want to take me. And that's the way I wrote Phone Booth and Cellular and all the more recent scripts that you might have seen of mine that have been produced. I just start off and see what every day will bring and I look forward to going back to writing again because I want to see what's going to happen next. I'm anxious to see how the story's going to work out. I, uh, I'm excited about it because I don't know where it's going and uh, it's, a, it's a process of discovery. Now many writers, they work out every detail in advance. If, if you work for a studio in developing a script, then you have to work out every beat in the story and, and get it approved before you write it. I mean, I've done those kind of jobs and it's not nearly as much fun as being able to sit down there and just write your script and have the mysterious experience of having it just happen 
as you're writing it. A lot of your films seem to be the melding of different genres, like Hugh like it has a, a sort of crime story with a monster movie. Uh, what draws you to that way of working? Well, I didn't intend to do a, a cross between a monster movie and a documentary Naked City kind of police drama in, on the streets of New York. I mean, we predated, with, with God Told Me To and Q, we, we predated The X-Files, which pretty much picked up on that same style of filmmaking where they would take a science fiction or fantasy story and shoot it in a realistic documentary you know, technique. I think we, we did that first, and I believe that uh, Chris Carter, who did The X-Files, was a fan of my movies, as well as a fan of my TV series The Invaders, which was a little ahead of its time also. It was a, a series about aliens infiltrating our society. It was on ABC television for a couple of seasons. And I think that was the precursor of things like X-Files. I'd like to talk about your work in television. As you stated, you created The Invaders, but you also created a television show called Branded. And both shows involve men trying to prove to other people that what other people believe is incorrect. And I was just wondering, what was the appeal to that particular theme? Well, in the uh, Branded show came out of a period in American life where they had something called the blacklist, where people were unable to find work because they had been accused of being communists, and whether they were or not, they couldn't get rid of that stigma. And so their whole lives were ruined, and they had to go and try and find some new place to start life over again. And branded a guy is court-martialed unjustly out of the cavalry, and branded a coward, and he has to go and try and live down that reputation. So basically I was doing, I was doing something that was politically oriented at the time, telling a story of a blacklisted man, but doing it in the context of a, a Western drama with action and the usual cowboy stuff. But at the same time, it has subtext that was pertinent to the period in which we were living. And The Invaders was similarly motivated by the communist witch hunts and stuff. Not that there weren't truly communists and communist agents working in the United States at the time, but it was, uh, it was exaggerated out of proportion for political reasons. That time that uh, we were in the, in the war in Korea, they wanted to stifle dissent against the Korean War, so keep people from marching in the streets and doing the same thing they ended up doing later on in Vietnam. So, you know, the uh, FBI and the government were intimidating the public by making them fearful that there was a huge communist conspiracy and anybody could be branded a communist, so people kept their mouth shut and didn't protest the Korean War. So out of that, out of that period, I decided, well, let's do a, a series about the paranoia of uh, people believing that any person could turn out to be one of the enemy in disguise, that uh, the aliens could have infiltrated our society so completely that uh, the man next door or the person working in the next cubicle could actually be an alien plotting the overthrow of our society. And that's, that, that I turned that into a, a, a commercial series about chasing invaders from another planet. But it all had a, a, a basic subtext of the political craziness that was going on in the country at that particular time in our history. Branded has one of the most dramatic openings and theme songs for a television show ever. Did you have anything to do with creating that particular opening? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote the opening, and uh, I suggested we have a song, and they got Tex Ritter, and Dominic Fronteri wrote the song, and I gave them basically the uh, elements that had to be in the song, the 
that there had been a massacre at Bitter Creek, and one man survived and got away, and uh, that he was branded, marked with a coward shame, and all that stuff. And uh, they put that into the song. But they were uh, pretty much following the outline that I gave them. Although I'm not a songwriter, uh, I, I gave them the context that they needed, and I said this will be a good way to frame the show, because every week the audience will know how this guy got into this situation, but it can be done quickly, dramatically, and with some song that will make, uh, you know, uh, it will catch on with the audience. And it did, actually. Many people remember the song long, even longer than they remember the show itself. On the DVD of Bone, it has an interesting Easter egg on it. It's a 30-minute black-and-white television show called You're Only Young Once. And it has you playing a young Ed Wynn, and I was just wondering, how did you get that acting gig? Well, first of all, I'd like to ask you a question. How do I get this Easter egg to play? Okay, it's there. It's You go to um, the um, special features, and it's got the interview of Jack H. Harris. Right. And then you just, I think you click to the right, and then a little television set icon will appear. Mm-hmm. And then you hit enter, and that, and it'll come on. Gee, I'm glad to find that out because I've had that damn thing here in the house for years. I've never been able to get it to come on. I, I didn't know how to do it. I'd love to see that show again. I gave them the 16-millimeter uh, print, but I've, I've never been able to make it work on, on, my, uh, on my DVD player. But now I'm going to go try. Anyway, uh, when I was in the Army, we did a play uh, on, on tour, uh, and I was in it. David Carradine was in it, too. We, we were both in the Army at the same time. And it was called Once Upon a Mattress with a musical that had been done on Broadway with Carol Burnett. And I played the king. I decided to play the king and do it in the voice of Ed Wynn. So I did that Ed Wynn impersonation in that show while I was in the Army. And then uh, years later, I was having dinner with a producer at, at my home. And I was kidding around, and I did the Ed Wynn impersonation for him. And he said, oh, my God, we've been looking all over Hollywood for somebody to play a young Ed Wynn in our TV pilot that we're doing. And would you do it? So I, I went into 20th Century Fox, and I, and I had to do the impersonation for Ed Wynn himself. And it's always embarrassing to do an impersonation to somebody, for them to hear it face-to-face. But I did it, and he was very pleased, so I ended up doing the show. As a matter of fact, Ethel Waters was in it also. She was a very, very famous black singer and Broadway star. And I had a great thrill working with both Ed Wynn and Ethel Waters, who were two legends in show business. Then when they ran the pilot for people to see, everybody thought he, he had dubbed me. Everybody didn't believe that uh, it was actually me doing the voice. They thought uh, that Edwin had uh, dubbed the voice in. And uh, so <laughs> I was so good. I, I defeated my own, uh, my own efforts by being too good. They thought it was Edwin's voice. But I, I didn't care one way or the other because the, the, ple- the real pleasure was in actually having uh, done the performance and ha- getting to work with all those fabulous classic actors. And it, it took me maybe two days over at 20th Century Fox to do that. And every time I did a take, they all, uh, the crew would all applaud and everything. It was, it was a very nice experience, but the waiting around all day convinced me that I really didn't want to be an actor. I was, uh, I was at that time uh, uh, co-producing the Branded series, and I... I disappeared for a few days while I went off and did the show at Fox. It's called You're Only Young Twice. Edwin takes a pill it turns him into a young man again. He becomes me. So after a while, the people at Brandon were looking for me because there was a lot of work to do on that series. I had to go back to work. So I put my 
my acting career to the side and return to being a writer and producer and director. All right, after you did Bone, you did Black Caesar and Hell Up in the Harlem with uh, Fred the Hammer Williamson, which is now, I guess, what people call the black exploitation pictures. Uh, what brought you into that genre? Well, uh, you know, I was just trying to write stories that I liked, and I just thought we'd do a gangster movie with, a, with black gangsters instead of white gangsters. It was uh, the, the, not dissimilar to Public Enemy with James Cagney or Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson. Originally, Sammy Davis Jr. was supposed to finance the uh, script and star in the picture. But when I wrote the treatment for the movie, Sammy didn't pay me the $10,000 that he owed me. And uh, they told me he was in trouble with the IRS and didn't have any money. So I ended up keeping the story. And then when uh, producers at American International said they were looking for a, a black gangster movie, I, I had this already written and just made the deal instantly on the spot. So I went off and made the film, and we shot most of it in New York City on the streets and had a great time doing it. We say we stole most of the movie, shooting all over New York City and the scenes that happened in downtown Manhattan where he gets shot and everything. That was all actually shot right on the streets of the city. Hidden cameras. People actually thought the guy had been shot, and there were a lot of the people in the crowd were actually reacting to what they believed was a news event, we were able to pull it off once again. So I guess I was a little bit crazy in those days. Your film, It's Alive, had an interesting advertising campaign. Could you talk a little bit about it? The uh, picture was sold very well with a campaign that didn't feature any actual scenes from the movie itself. It was shot separately. It was uh, looked like a commercial for baby food or some other child-related product had little tinkling bells on the soundtrack, and there was a camera dollying in on a crib, and it was a very idyllic-looking commercial. It looked like uh, they were going to be selling talcum powder. And then when the camera got all the way around to the other side of the crib, we saw this little claw coming out from under the covers, and the promotional line was, uh, there's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby, it's alive. And that really sold the picture. People saw that on television. And they went to see the movie. It became the number one box office grossing film in the United States. It was a big, big hit. You know, it was wonderful for me and wonderful for Warner Brothers, who incidentally had had the picture on uh, the shelf for almost three and a half years. It, it was made for one administration at Warner Brothers, and then by the time I delivered the picture, all the people that had commissioned the film had been fired, and there were new people running the company, and when I brought the picture in, it was like a waiter coming out of the kitchen and coming to the table and finding all new people are sitting there saying, we didn't order this, they didn't know what to do with the picture. And they thought that a movie about a monster baby was absolutely, totally objectionable and that no one would go to see it. So they gave it a very minimal release, and it played around the country. But as it was, the picture did catch on because they kept playing the picture over and over again as a second feature and even in some areas as a triple feature. And the picture kept playing constantly for years, but no big box office because they'd only made like 50 prints at the time. So the picture was a failure, but still in distribution. In those days, there was no home video, so the picture couldn't be sold uh, uh, in any other venue. If that had been uh, possible, they would have done it, and that would have been the end of the movie. In today's marketplace, the picture would have ended up on home video a few months after the initial release, and that would have been the finish of it. But fortunately for me, there was no home video in those days, so the pictures just languished. And overseas, it became a huge hit. It was a big success 
in France. It won the Avoriaz Film Festival, which is the science fiction film festival in France, and the judge was Polanski. And uh, then it opened in Paris and did tremendous business, and then all over Europe. And then it, in the Asian countries, it was a big hit. As a matter of fact, they called me up one day from the foreign division at Warner Brothers and said, you won't believe it, Larry, but It's Alive is the second biggest success in the history of Warner Brothers Studios in Singapore. I almost fell out of my chair. I figured, what is Singapore, a little town with thatched roofs? But in fact, it's a, met, a major, major marketplace and a big metropolis. This was the second largest grossing film in the history of Warner Brothers Studios, uh, only outgrossed by My Fair Lady. I couldn't believe that. I went back to the Warner Brothers people in, here in Hollywood and told them, I said, you know, we're the second biggest grossing film in the history of Warner's in, in Singapore. They threw me out of the office. They said, they want to hear about Singapore. They said, this picture is through. It's never going to play again. Forget about it. But I waited, and sure enough, the administration at Warner Brothers changed, and everybody got fired, and a new bunch came in, and there was a fellow named Terry Semmel who became head of distribution. He was later to become chairman of the board of Warner Brothers. This was one of the first things that happened in his career as distributing head, and I went to him and said, look, we made this picture. I wish I'd just look at it. I've been pestering them for three and a half years. Finally, Terry Summer ran the film and called me up and said, you know, that picture scared me out of my wits. And I checked, and I think Warner Brothers has done a very big disservice to your film, and we're going to re-release the picture. So they made this campaign that the... Uh, crib and the, and the claw, and they opened the picture again, this time with a thousand prints, which is a big jump from 50, and big saturation TV campaign, and the picture became the number one box office picture in America. So it, it had been playing at the bottom half of a triple bill on Hollywood Boulevard here, and next thing I knew, it was playing as the main feature at the Paramount Theater on Hollywood Boulevard with lines around the block. So it just goes to show you what can happen. This could never happen today because of home video, and it never happened again in the history of the movies. So this picture was kind of a phenomenon in that it came back from the dead and became the number one picture in the country. You wrote and directed, I think, a really great, uh, sadly neglected movie called Return to Salem's Lot. And one of the stars of the movie is the legendary writer-director Samuel Fuller. Do you have any stories about working with Mr. Fuller? Well, Sam Fuller was a friend of mine. We'd always palled around, and, and he was living in Paris at the time, and whenever he go to Paris, we'd spend a lot of time uh, walking down the Champs-Élysées arm-in-arm, and he would tell you his stories and everything. He, would, he was great when he told you stories. He'd always grab you by the wrist and dig his fingernails into your wrist and hold you in an iron-like grip till he was finished telling the story. You couldn't get loose till he, was, he wrapped up his tail and sometimes it went on for 20 minutes, and then finally he'd, he'd release you, and the circulation could come back to your arm again. But uh, that's the way Sam was. He, he grabbed you and held you when he tells you a story. And I liked him so much that I wanted to write a part for him, and so I did. And I said, Sam, this isn't, this isn't one of these one-day jobs, which you've been doing occasionally, where you come in and do a few lines and you're gone. This is a major role. You're going to have to work for four weeks, and we're going to shoot it up in Vermont. And sure enough, he flew over and... I think he could have used the money at the time, too, because in the last years he wasn't getting to direct. And so uh, uh, this part was written especially for him, and we had a great time working on it because he was an old man, but he had a tremendous vitality. And we were shooting this vampire movie, and most of it at night. And sometimes we'd be going, you know, 20, 22, 23 hours a day shooting this picture. Everybody would be exhausted, but Sam 
he was fresh and vigorous, and nobody could understand how he could possibly keep going. Uh, the secret was he would sneak back to his hotel room and take a shower and shave and then come back to the set. Nobody even knew he'd been gone, and he would look fresh and bright and breezy and keep going, and he was an example to everybody. So we, we, we had a terrific time with him. Your screenplay, you mentioned it earlier, uh, Phone Booth. I read that the idea of the movie came from Alfred Hitchcock. Could you elaborate? Well, it came from a meeting I had with Alfred Hitchcock. It was my idea, but I'd suggest, after he had done Rear Window and Lifeboat, which were films that all took place in limited settings, I said, you know, Hitch, how about a movie that would take place in a phone booth? Oh, he loved that idea. But we could never figure out how to make it work. I had not thought of using the device I used in God Told Me To of a sniper with a telescopic rifle as the element that keeps the guy from leaving the telephone booth. It took me years before suddenly it dawned on me that I could just take the diaper from my other movie and put it into phone booth, and that would make the whole thing work. By that time, Hitch was gone, and there was no chance to do it with him. But I remember whenever I'd bump into him at premieres and events, he'd always say to me, what about our phone booth idea? And I, I was unable to lick it during his lifetime. But certainly the fact that he'd given me some encouragement made me continually come back to that idea and try to figure out how to make it work. Incidentally, we just did a stage production of Phone Booth in Japan. In Tokyo, the Japanese put on a stage production of the show. It was a big hit, so I'm hoping there'll be other stage productions of Phone Booth around the country. Somebody just called from New York and wants to do it in New York City as an off-Broadway show. Uh, to jump back to a movie you made in uh, 77, which was The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, which you made, it was, I think it was only five years after Hoover died. Did you uh, get any heat from the FBI over making that movie? Well, that's my favorite movie of all the ones I did, because everybody told me, oh, you better not make a movie about the FBI, because the FBI was you know, a very powerful organization and could do a lot of harm to you if they wanted to, and were basically behind the investigations of the House Un-American Activities Committee and, and the blacklist and all that stuff. Uh, people were, were targeted by the FBI. They never worked anymore uh, for years here in Hollywood, and people were still scared of the FBI because this movie was made in around 1972 we started. That wasn't that long after the Red Scare out here and the and it went in a period when the FBI had everybody terribly intimidated. In addition to which, they were just going to come out with videos. And if you notice at the beginning of every video is the FBI seal warning everybody not to pirate the videos. So the uh, industry was looking to the FBI for protection of their products, and they weren't anxious to alienate the FBI by making a film that was critical. Up until that time, nobody had ever made a movie critical of the FBI. It had always been sacrosanct, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, every FBI movie had to have approval of the Bureau and an FBI agent on the set to make sure that nothing was done that the FBI would find objectionable. So somebody told me there was actually a statute on the books that it was illegal to make a movie about the FBI without FBI approval and to use the FBI seal in the film. But I just went ahead, wrote my script, Mr. Hoover had just died. His associate, Mr. Tolson, was still alive when I was writing it. Then Mr. Tolson passed away. So I guess the leading figure in the, in the FBI at the time I was developing this script was Mark Felt, who later on was revealed to be Deep Throat by uh, Woodward and Bernstein. So here I was making this film, and then we went to Washington. And fortunately, I got a, uh, a New York Times Washington Bureau 
correspondent to be my technical advisor, and he got me into a lot of places, including the Bureau, and we shot some scenes. I told him we were just shooting the scenes because we wanted to see what the sets looked like so we could duplicate them in Hollywood. But actually, we used the actual footage of the FBI. So we shot in Hoover's office and in uh, all the corridors and chambers of the actual Justice Department building where the FBI was situated. And, and at first, when we went back with our cast of uh, Broderick Crawford and Dan Daly and Jose Ferrer and all the others, people did not want to give us locations. They were scared when we were... They'd say yes, but then after a, a, a day or so, and they found out it was a movie about J. Edgar Hoover, and it didn't have the approval of the Bureau, then they withdrew the uh, permission. We were, we were without locations. I had all these wonderful actors in hotels in uh, Washington and no place to shoot. And then we got a call from the White House, from uh, Betty Ford's office. She was the wife of President Ford, and she was a former chorus girl, and a big fan of Dan Daly, who had made a lot of movies with Betty Grable over at 20th Century Fox. He was a song and dance man, as well as a very fine actor. And President Ford and his wife wanted to invite Dan Daly and Broderick Crawford to lunch at the White House. So I jumped at the opportunity. We closed the picture down, and I sent them to the White House. And then I called up all the places I wanted to get permission to shoot, and including the FBI themselves. And I said, you know, uh, we want to... We want to shoot at your uh, facility at Quantico, the training academy, but we can't come today because the two stars are having lunch with the president at the White House. Well, they put me on hold, and then they came back and said, well, when do you want to come? And I said, well, how about uh, day after tomorrow? And then I called the next place and said the same thing. Oh, we'd like to shoot there, but uh, unfortunately the stars are at the uh, White House having lunch with the president. So people would check on that and call me back and say, okay, when do you want to come? So we got permission to shoot every place we wanted to go. All of a sudden, we owned Washington, and all thanks to Betty Ford and Gerald Ford. Do you know if that movie will be coming out on video anytime soon? It seems like the time is right for it with the uh, new Michael Mann movie, Public Enemies, out. That's yeah, there's a lot of scenes in Public Enemies that are very, very similar to what's in the J. Edgar Hoover movie. But I thought that the, the uh, depiction of J. Edgar Hoover in the film uh, it was it came nowhere near as uh, being as uh, as accurate and vivid as what we had in our film. I think our film is one of the best depictions of the FBI ever done. Uh, some of the critics say it was the best FBI movie ever made. MGM has the rights, and it's out on uh, on uh, VHS. It can be ordered over the internet on VHS, but it's not yet on the DVDs. So we're hoping to get it out soon. But, you know, uh, what the, what's the rush? It'll come out eventually, and people see it. Every once in a while it pops up on television or on cable, and people see the film, and I get a lot of calls. The interesting thing is that we we made this picture in 75, 76, and in, in the picture we, we, we actually stated that uh, the source of the information that brought down Nixon, all the Watergate information that was attributed to Deep Throat, actually originated at the highest level of the FBI. And we said that the FBI actually leaked the information that brought down Nixon. Nobody paid any attention to it at the time. We even mentioned Mark Felt as being the most probable deep throat because Mark Felt was the number one guy at the FBI after Hoover died and Tolson was incapacitated because of illness. So Mark Felt was basically running the FBI and I believe he was following the instructions of J. Edgar Hoover before Hoover had passed away. 
to bring down the Nixon administration. The first thing they had to do was get rid of Spiro Agnew, who was vice president. So they leaked the information that Spiro Agnew was taking bribes, and they disposed of Spiro Agnew. That was the first part of the job that had to be done, because you certainly didn't want to get rid of Nixon and end up with Spiro Agnew as president. So they, they, they deposed Spiro Agnew, and then after that, the next one down was Nixon, and the information was leaked from Mark Felt, who was the number one FBI guy, to uh, Woodward and Bernstein. And he knew that Woodward and Bernstein represented the Washington Post, which was the number one enemies of Richard Nixon. They were a Kennedy-oriented newspaper and would love to bring down Nixon if they could. So everything was, everything was set up. Uh, the, entire, the entire collapse of the Nixon administration and the arrest of the Attorney General and all the other people that went to jail is all a result of the uh, mechanism set up by J. Edgar Hoover. And the last person that Woodward and Bernstein would want to acknowledge as being their benefactor would be J. Edgar Hoover. The Washington Post was uh, also not sympathetic to J. Edgar Hoover. They would never want to admit that Hoover had been the, the brains behind the entire collapse of the Nixon administration. But our movie said so, and yet nobody paid any attention to it back when it came out. Today, if you look at the picture, you see that we were absolutely correct, that the information that I got from ex-FBI agents and the research I did was better information than any of the newspapers had at the time or any of the media had. We, we, we scooped everybody back then, but Nobody paid any attention to it because nobody wanted to think that a movie company making an entertainment movie could actually scoop the, the national media who were supposedly on top of the story. And to this day, they still haven't got the story correct. They know that Mark Felt gave the information, but they don't know that it was not an individual choice that he made, but rather he was following the edict of, of his leader, J. Edgar Hoover, who was like a god to Mark Felt. And that's what Hooper wanted done. He set the thing in motion, and then he died. But he's, his, um, you know, his spirit was there. And I'm not saying that Hoover was blameless or a great hero or whatever, but he did bring down Nixon. One final question, just what are you working on right now? Well, we have a couple of pictures coming out. One is called Messages Deleted. It's a thriller. We have a movie on uh, Hallmark Channel called The, uh, the Gambler, the Girl, and the Gunslinger. The Gambler, the Girl, and the Gunslinger. It's a Western, which we, which I wrote 36 years ago, but finally somebody bought it and made the picture, and it's appearing on Hallmark Channel. Then we've got another picture starting to shoot in Philadelphia called Someone's Watching, and I've got another script uh, that I'm currently writing, another one that we did for a French company called Talk Show, which is the thriller that all takes place during a TV talk show in the same style as Phone Lewis. So we got a lot of things on the agenda, still working away. Well, just want to say at this end, uh, thank you so much. This has just been a real thrill to be able to talk to you, hey, sir. Hey, listen, uh, you knew a lot about my movies. I certainly appreciate it. And thanks for telling me how to find that, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Easter egg. Easter egg. Easter egg, yeah, man. That's, that's a big favor. I'm going down now and trying to do it. Well, listen, I appreciate it. I always like to know that people are enjoying my films and everything. And, and you know, J. Edgar Hoover, as I say, is a picture that I, everybody should try and get to see if they can. If anybody wants to email MGM and say, please put J. Edgar Hoover out on DVD, that would be a big thing to do. And if they got enough response from people, they might put the picture out on DVD and uh, a lot of people get to see it, which is all I want.
All you can dream of when you make a movie is that people will see the movie. That's all you want them to do. The greatest reward you can have is that people are watching your stuff. And that people like you call up once in a while and want to know something about your movies. And I, and I really appreciate it. We would like to thank Larry Cohen for taking time from his busy schedule to do this interview. If you would like to hear more, please come to the Downtown Public Library at 2 p.m. on Saturday, October 17th to hear an audio-taped introduction to the movie, It's Alive. I would also like to tell you on October 3rd at 2 o'clock, we will show Asylum. And on October 24th at 2 p.m., local horror movie host Dr. Gang Green will be on hand to present The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. So be there if you dare.